Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, our text this morning is verses 7 through 12 of God's Holy Word. Last Lord's Day, we began chapter 7 really digging into the question of our relation to the law of God. He anticipates a number of questions about the law of God based on what he has said prior to this. And so he is once again shedding light on the usefulness of the law, how it is profitable, how it is good, that it is holy and righteous. He made it clear that the law cannot save. The law has no salvific element to it. It could only condemn. He talked about how we are obligated to the requirements of the law as a spouse is obligated to keep their vow of marriage in our natural state. It is by the law of God that we are condemned. This is God's standard and we cannot get away from it. We cannot appease God. We cannot do anything to rid ourselves of guilt and so we are held bondage, held in bondage to it. Until, as Paul says, we died to it. And once we died to the law, dying to our old self because of being united to another, which is Christ, now, now we obey from the heart, he says. We have been released from the law, released from the curse of the law. It is no longer condemning against, against us. He says we have died to that which we are bound so that we might serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So in our text this morning, Paul is once again reiterating some of the things that he has said already. He's actually going to elaborate a little further on what he said in chapter 7, verse 5, as he anticipates more questions. But he begins once again by asking a, a question, as he has done in, in chapter 6. He is stirring the minds of, of the recipients of this letter. He is causing them to consider these things, to ponder on these things. And he has much to say to them, just in case if they were to have the opinion. So if it is the law that arouses sin within us, and we have died to the law, then what bearing does the law have? What do we do then? Is it still necessary? Is it... Is it sinful? Is it useless? Is there no profit in upholding it? And these are the questions that Paul is answering here. Again, because he had previously said, back in chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. He said in chapter 5, verse 20, The law came in so that transgression would increase. What does this mean? And again, what bearing does it have on our lives or even the life of the unregenerate? Again, what does that mean when it, comes to, when it comes to the law and grace? Is there a conflict here? Do you have to pick one or the other? And the conclusion that Paul comes to is that the law is to be established. He's already said that. And that the law is good and it's right and it's holy and it is certainly not in opposition to the gospel. And he's going to use his own experience, his own 
knowledge of the law in order to bring these truths about for us this morning. So if you would and you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the clarity that it gives to us, understanding, Father, what is good and right and pleasing in your sight, how we may carry out your will while you give us time here on earth. Thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us in Christ, that we may receive your word with joy and gladness and to delight in it. Father, we pray that as we work our way through this passage this morning, that again our hearts will be lifted up to you to honor you and seek to honor you through obeying what you have commanded. Father, guide our thoughts, and may you bless the preaching of your word, and may our hearts be receptive to hear it and to carry it out by your spirit. We love you. We thank you for all things in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so here's another question. From the Apostle Paul, again, based on what he has said previously. So the law came in so that transgressions would be increased. The law arouses sin within us. And here he's talking to his Jewish audience, which delights greatly in the law of God, prides themselves in, in having the law of God. This was part of their very national identity that separated them from all the nations of the world. I mean, when the law was given in Deuteronomy, well, actually when the law was reiterated in Deuteronomy, you know, what nation is there that has laws as, as righteous as these, the nations would say. And now all of a sudden, Paul, are you saying that the law has no usefulness to us? That, that it is done away? Is it sinful? And so he asked this question again, anticipating maybe these objections. And he does so in order to once again cause his audience to just ponder his, his statements, these statements of truth that he has given thus far, so that they don't come to the wrong conclusion when it comes to the law of God. And so the question then, what shall we say then? What conclusion should we come to is the law sin? Is it sinful? The law cannot justify us before God. We know that. He's made that very clear. The law arouses sin within us. 
Is it sinful? And he immediately responds back, may it never be. Again, just as one theologian had said earlier, what Paul is saying is no, no, a thousand times no. The law is not sinful. Not at all. The law is good and the law is holy. The law is the expression of the holiness of God. It cannot be sinful for it comes from him. It was a holy God that gave the law. And the law here is most likely in view of the moral law. The Decalogue itself, which is the Ten Commandments, is probably what's in view here. There is nothing sinful about the law of God, for it has come from God. It is the expression of His holy nature, His holy character. It is the standard by which He, he measures humanity, in which we are to measure ourselves. The law exposes sin because it presents God's holy standard of what He requires. And so the answer is no. May it never be. God forbid. Don't come to this conclusion. And this is something he's going to reiterate in verse 12. May it never be. And he's going to give us his own experience here. He's going to say a few things here. Then he's going to elaborate on it further. He's going to give us a short answer and then a long answer. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Now, looking at sin, when we're looking at the 1689 London Baptist Catechism, the question, what is sin? And the answer, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. How do we define what sin is? You can only define sin when you have a standard of what is good. And Paul is saying, I would not have known sin except for the law of God. Had the commandment not said to me, you shall not covenant or covet, I wouldn't have known. For sin to be understood as it is sin and the heinousness of sin, it must have a standard to be held up to. And so Paul says, no, it's not sin. There's nothing sinful about it. I wouldn't have known sin had it not been for the law. And you think about some of the things that he had said elsewhere in regards to the law of God in Galatians chapter 3. He says, 319, we'll jump, we'll jump in there. He says, why the law or why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been had been made. Now, mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Meganoita, that's the same thing. God forbid. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. But the scriptures has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law is the tutor. 
that leads us to Christ. How is it the tutor that leads us to Christ? Because it holds up the standard. And we measure ourselves against that standard and we say, I didn't know that that was sinful. I didn't know that this was a heinous crime against the holy God. Now, there's some other interesting things that he's going to say here, but, but this is what he's getting at. The law is good. The law increases sin because it exposes sin. The law increases sin because natural man is naturally an enemy of God and will do the very thing that God says not to do. And when you hold up the law of God, what is it that natural men desire to do? You say, thou shalt not. I say, I will. And so he's, he's driving home this point, which he has been elaborating on already. The law is good. There's nothing evil about it. It doesn't promote wickedness or folly. There is no just criticisms against the law of God that can be made. And what the law does is that it not only exposes the outward actions of men, but it exposes the inward rebellion of the heart. And this is perhaps why he uses this example to describe his own experience of how the law of God was useful and good and right in his own life. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Why does he choose coveting? Of all the sins that he could have done, why did he choose coveting? If you take the second tablet of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments, you have murder and lying and adultery you have stealing. These are outward actions. But one of those deals with the heart, the inner man. We can keep from murdering someone. We can try to keep ourselves from stealing and adultery and lying and various things like that. But one thing that you cannot do is control the sinful heart when you are in an unregenerate state specifically. Coveting. This Impure, lustful desire is what he is referring to here. Now, something to point out, and it's really not that important, but just to let everybody know, uh, as Paul is elaborating on this, some would say maybe Paul's referring to Israel as a whole. Maybe he's referring to Adam, even though he's using these personal pronouns of I. And they have various arguments in order to try to sustain that. Uh, but really and truly, if we just take the scripture to say what it says, we understand that Paul is talking about himself. Is what Paul's saying about himself true of all? Yes, it is, because coveting is something that all do. And in fact, it's coveting that leads you to adultery. It's coveting that leads you to murder or stealing or lying. Coveting is, is true of all. I did not know, I did not know about coveting, he says, until the commandment said, you shall not covet. But when the commandment came, he says, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, this is a very interesting statement that he makes here. Again, 
you think about the way that his Jewish audience perhaps would have taken some of the things that he's saying. What do you mean by this? He wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet it. And here's Paul. He's a Jewish man. He's grown up with the law. He's always had the law. So what does he mean by that? I wouldn't have known had the law not said that. But you grew up with the law, Paul. What do you mean? You've known about this. And perhaps what he's referring to is when the law came to bear on his conscience. When he was converted. That this was something that became even more real to him. And I believe that's a lot of what he is saying here. There's a debate whether or not Paul is talking about pre-conversion or after his conversion. I think because some of the things he's saying, he's speaking as a believer, but he's also referencing his unregenerate state before. And so instead of trying to choose one or the other, we'll just look at both of our life before and our life thereafter. Now, remember something that Paul had said earlier. He condemned the Jews. He indicted the Jews under sin, even though they had the law. They had the law. They knew the law, but the law had not come to bear on their mind, their conscience, and their hearts. He says back in chapter 2, beginning of verse 17, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are, con and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of immature, having, the law, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the, name of the, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And so having a knowledge of it and having it to bear upon your heart is two different things there. The Jews had the law. They teach people you shall not steal. And Paul is saying, but do you steal? You say you shouldn't commit adultery. Are you committing adultery? You who abhor idols, do you go and rob the temple when the temple is deserted and take the goods from the temple? And that's where he comes into those, those conclusions even back then. You're hypocrites. You're saying one thing and you're doing the very thing that you say not to do. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. He knew about coveting. The law had said you shall not covet. But in his unregenerate state, we could look at this and say, perhaps in his natural state, sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. What is the natural response for the unregenerate when he hears the law of God or when he comes to understand what the law of God is saying? It is to do that very thing. That's exactly what he indicted the Jews for, what we just read in chapter 2. You say this, but you're doing it. Why? Because in your natural state, you are an enemy of God. You do not desire the law of God. In fact, he'll say in chapter 8, for the ones who are in the flesh, they're hostile towards God. They're not even able to subject themselves, uh, themselves to the law of God. When God said, you shall not, it's sin that, that wells up within us and says, yes, we can and we shall. 
When you understand that there's a specific thing that God had said not to do, what does it do? It makes you want to do it. One theologian, he used this example of, of this one pastor. A pastor, he wasn't questioning his, the genuineness of his faith, none of the above. This pastor had, had passed by uh, this, this, um, this orchard numerous times. I forgot what kind of fruit it was that was on the tree. Passed by it numerous times, never paid attention to it, never even thought about it, nothing. All of a sudden he hears on the news that uh, the, the farmers are having these problems or whatever, and that uh, the fruit that drops to the ground, they're not going to pick it up this time, they're just going to leave it. And it was against the law to go and pull over and pick up their fruit. And he said that when he heard that, the very thing that he wanted to do was to stop and gather the fruit. Say, well, Why? Here's a good example. Whenever you're walking on the sidewalk and you have to be maybe at a fancy place or at a university or something like that, and you see these signs, don't walk on the grass. And I think, I can say for me, well, that's just ridiculous. It's grass. I'm going to walk on the grass. Why do we do that? Remember, we still have to deal with the rudiments of the old man that is in us. Why do we do that? Because when you say, you shall not, even the rudiments of the old man in us even now say, yes, I will. And think of the natural man in his unregenerate state when he sees the law of God or comes to understand the law of God. His first inclination is, I will not obey that. And so what does it do? Sin becomes alive in us even more, in the unregenerate man, rather. It produced in Paul coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, that's an interesting statement. What he makes that uh, sin is dead apart from the law, we're not, we're not aroused to do anything until we know that it's wrong. And so when the law comes in, then it stirs within us the rebellion against the Lord and says, oh, I will do that. And here's, here's Paul that is talking about this. This is, this is the one who always had the law. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. All the things that he says before regarding the law, he was blameless in his outward conformity to it. But when he truly perceived what the purpose of the law was through his own experience, his own conversion, he understood his utter sinfulness. He goes on to say in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Let's, let's remind ourselves something about Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, I just alluded to it, but let's read what he actually said here. In Philippians chapter 3, jumping in at verse 2, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Now this is the way that he perceived himself to be. This is the way many people view themselves to be. That they, that they are righteous in their own right, in their own mind. They are good people. You know, that's the thing that you find a lot of times. That's one of the reasons why Ray Comfort perhaps asked that question a lot. Do you think you're a good person? Because people have their own standard of what is good to them. And they are very self-righteous. And Paul was very self-righteous himself. He says, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. That's the way that he thought of himself. He said he was once alive apart from the law. He once regarded himself in this kind of a way. Self-righteous. But then he says, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. When the commandment came to bear on his conscience and on his heart, sin became alive. It was seen to be exactly what it was. One writer says this, Paul is basically saying, I was living before the arrival of the law to my... I was living before the arrival of the law, but sin sprang to life when the law came. As a result, I died. He came to see himself for who he was when the Lord regenerated his heart and the law of God came to bear. Back in Philippians 3, he goes on to say, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. His own experience is what he's elaborating on here. He was once a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was once a persecutor of the church, believing himself to be uh, righteous in all of his actions. As to the law, he was found blameless. At least that's how he perceived himself to be. Until the day came in which the Lord caused him to die to his old self and be united to another. And then he came to see sin for what it was. In the day that that occurred, he says, I died. I came to see who I really was. Sin became alive. It was, it was, it was dormant, you could say. It deceived me. He's going to go on to say that. But when he died, he came to see himself for who he was. People live living apart from the law, even today, very self-righteous. They don't see their need for God. They don't see their need to obey the law of God. 
They believe perhaps even that their standard is more righteous and more moral than God's law. You see that today. All you have to do is, especially for any of us that have talked to Sammy, who her and her husband run the Imago Day ministry, they're always at the clinic, the abortion clinic. And they're always begging mothers not to murder their babies. And the very response that they have back is not, yes, you're right. You know, God says not to murder. The response that they get back is very hateful, very demeaning. Women can do what they want to with their own bodies. This is a health issue, perhaps. You're immoral for telling them that they can't have their, their own decisions with their own bodies. You bring up anything with the LGBT movement. And guess what? You yourself are immoral. Because their standard is better. Our standard is tolerance, unless you're against it. Then we're not tolerant, even though we claim to be tolerant. Your God says, you shall not. Well, we shall, and we do, and it's right, and you're wrong. Why is that? Because people are living apart from the law of God. The law of God has not come to bear. And as they see the commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, the natural self in rebellion against God says, yes, I will. They are in enmity with God and they will not submit to the law of God. Many people live in this way, alive apart from the law. But he goes on to say, And this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. The very thing I thought would bring me life, just as the rest of his Jewish audience believe themselves to have the law and even carry out the things of the law, that this is the means by which we will be justified before God. Paul himself was under that impression. And then when, he, when everything came tumbling down, as far as his self-righteousness, the way that he viewed himself, the means by which he would achieve justification, this commandment which was to result in life the way that I thought it would before, it proved to be death to me. It proved to be death because it was only condemning, because the law can only condemn, the law can only expose sin. These are things that he said before. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. Sin deceived me, he says. Sin made him think that he was something other than what he actually was. To be better than what he was. Ultimately, as he come to understand, he was only storing up wrath for the day of wrath because he was clearly a transgressor of God's law. And the very law that came to bear first, as he is bringing out to us here, was the very law of coveting. I can control the things that I do, my outward actions, but I can't control that. That's in, that's in my heart. And this is his own experience. Before he didn't see himself as vile and wicked and evil. A transgressor of the, the law of, of the God whom he claimed to serve. But when the commandment came, he died. Sin took an opportunity through the commandment, enticing him to do the very things that God said not to do. 
when everything came upon him, he realized he was being deceived and he died. Especially with coveting. You think of coveting. You know, this is one of the sins that Jesus himself speaks of in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, take heed and beware of covetousness. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he said, covetousness is a moral vice which infects and pollutes the whole soul. It's not just an outward action. Another theologian said his outward life may have been relatively blameless, but his inward life was a chamber of horrors. The law is what exposes not just what we should do and not do in outward action, but it exposes the pollution of the heart. One writer says this, I did not know how sinful I was until God's commandments came to me. Sin seemed to be dead within me, and I thought myself a righteous man. But when the law of God came home to my heart and conscience... And I understood that even a sinful thought would ruin me, that a hasty word had the essence of murder in it, and that the utmost uncleanliness, uncleanliness might lurk under the cover of what seemed a mere custom of my fellow men. When I found out all this, sin did indeed live, but I died so far as righteousness was concerned. So some of the things that Paul is saying here, Paul is saying, one, when it comes to the law of God, there's nothing sinful about it because the law of God exposes sin. And in that sense, it is good and it is right. It is the law of God that teaches us of the standard that our Lord desires and it drives us to Christ. We become awakened within when the Spirit of God brings these things to bear and we realize that we are in need of God's grace and mercy. This is why this is a good thing to use the law of God in your evangelism. If you're going to tell people that they are sinners, they have to understand what does that mean and what is it? what mark have I missed? And it was the law of God that drove Paul to Christ and so it cannot be that the law of God is in some kind of an opposition to the gospel. But if the law of God is necessary to drive people to the gospel. The law doesn't make anyone sin. It doesn't present any false way. It's not deceptive, any of the above. Though natural man sees the law of God and decides to do that which is against it. It isn't the law doing it, but sin that is in them. And it begins much, much of the time with coveting. That was one of the first sins, wasn't it? Eve's looking at the tree, begins to desire it. Achan hears the commandment, don't take none of the spoils from Jericho. What does it do? It makes him want to take the spoils of Jericho. The law of God was already in place. You shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet another man's wife. And then you have the king up on his roof viewing another, coveting and doing the very thing that God says not to do. It is indeed a pollution of the heart. And as Thomas Watson says, 
That's a moral vice which infects and pollutes the whole soul, but it's the law of God that exposes it to be what it is. Otherwise, maybe apart from the law of God, we might think, well, this isn't a bad thing. Nobody knows what's going on in my mind. I'm not telling anybody. Yeah, I desire that over there. I desire what they have there. But it's the law of God that says, no, you're not righteous at all. For these other outward things that you may be keeping yourself from, those things are produced by what is inside, which begins with coveting. A sin is truly deceiving to the natural, to the natural man so much that when he sees or hears God's law, he's confronted with it and he thinks himself to be morally superior. So the law is good and that exposes sin. The law drives us to the cross and the law exposes people for their depravity and their arrogance towards the holy God. Now, we see these things about the law of God and we study on the law of God. We hear what Paul is saying about the law of God. And the conclusion that he comes to is the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And we say we agree with that. But there are still rudiments of the old man, even within us, that when we are presented with the law of God, we say, hmm, that's legalistic. Hmm, that's not for our day. Others will go even further to say, well, we're under grace. You know, Vody Bakum had said this. He says, it's like a road. You got one ditch, which is legalism. You got the other ditch, which is antinomianism. And Christianity is in the middle. When we talk about bringing the law of God to bear on others, what's the very thing that we think? Mm. No. And why do we think that? Because we think perhaps that there's a better standard. A greater standard? And this is something that you have to ask yourself. Is there a more righteous standard than the law of God? No. We even go so far as to say, you know, back in the Old Testament time, we see all the amazing things that happened. The manifestations of the glory of God and all of this. And yet when we begin to talk about that time in history, we almost say, I'm so glad that I didn't live then because the law was very restrictive then. As if God is somehow unjust for declaring the things that he said. There is nothing unjust about the law of God. It is faultless. It is the means now, as Paul can readily say, that it's good and it's holy and it's righteous. It is indeed holy. It's, it's set apart. It's from God. It's not from man. It's not common. It is good, meaning that it is profitable to those who obey it. It is righteous. It is faultless. It is right. It is in agreement with God's holy and righteous character. And so Paul is saying this as a believer. The law is good and it is right. 
So when you think about the law of God, it exposes sin. It drives us to the cross. It exposes the depravity of man. And it is our guide through life as believers. When you think about what Paul is saying here, some of the things that should come to our minds is what the psalmists say about the law of God. The wisdom that is in the law of God. How the, we were benefited by keeping the law of God. And it is good. It's sweeter than honey. And that's why when we look at the threefold use of the law, that's why we have what Paul's saying here. One, it's our tutor. It drives us to Christ. It exposes you to be who you really are. It's our guide to walk us through life. You get the first use of the law, the third use of the law. You have the second use of the law, which Paul also refers to in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, which is the second use of the law to restrain evil in society. Is the law useful for the believer? It's absolutely useful for the believer. Is the law contrary to the gospel? May it never be. I wouldn't have known sin had it not been for the law. How do you know that you're a sinner and flee to Christ unless you know that you have transgressed the holy God? What's your thoughts on the law? How do you perceive the law? Do you see... How the apostle is bringing out these truths concerning the law of God. Do you see your need to know God's law? To abide by God's law? Or do you believe that your set of morals is more superior? Do you believe that your standard is better? Because they do. Do you see the law and the gospel at odds? As being incompatible? May it never be. Because it isn't. When we talk about being under grace, that doesn't mean, dear Christian, that does not mean that the law is of no use to you now or that God has somehow come up with a different standard than what he had previously said. Neil forgot to come up with a different standard a different law, his character would have to change to something different because the law is the expression of his holiness. And so if the law changes and comes up with something different than was before, that means his character has changed. And we know God does not change. He is the same. He is the unchangeable God. And so the law is good, and it is holy, and it is profitable for you. It is good for you and me. It is good because it teaches us what God desires of us and how we may live before our holy God. One thing about the Christian faith, you don't have to guess 
about what it is that God wants. You know, when you get into these other religions and such, they, they have to guess, well, maybe our God is appeased by this, and maybe he's appeased by this, and you've got to go through all these elaborate things, and you never have assurance of whether or not your God is ever happy with you. But that's not true with the Christian faith. Our God is happy with you, you could say. Probably not the best way to put it. But he's happy with you on account of his son. God is pleased with you on account of his son. You have favor with God on account of his son. And now, for us, now we may live a life to honor him and to show him how grateful that we are. And in order to do that, what are the very things that we need to be doing? Or that we need to try to understand more of that we can carry them out and to delight in. It's the law of God. We don't have to guess. We know that's right. We know that's good. There's no laws that are more righteous than these. So that's what we do then. Don't dismiss the law of God. Don't act as if the law of God has no usefulness to you. Because what was the very things that we've been talking about, the thing that we just talked about last week? Richard had brought it up on a Wednesday night. As the Spirit of God is conforming us to the very image of Christ, what are we being conformed to? If we say, which we say often, that Christ fulfilled all the righteousness of the law of God perfectly, and it's that righteousness that is credited to us through faith, then that means as we are being conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit of God, we're being conformed to the law of God. And so, dear Christian, it's good and it's right and it's holy. It's useful to us. It's useful for us, for us in our evangelism. It's useful for us in determining those that are truly in their unregenerate state by how they respond to the law of God. It's good and it's right. And it is something we can delight in. But you can only delight in it, dear friend, if you're in Christ. Otherwise, it will only arouse sin within you. Otherwise, you will be in more rebellion against our Lord. But in Christ, you can delight in the law of God because the Spirit has changed you and it can be your guide through this world. So I pray that if you do not know Christ, that Christ will do a mighty work within your heart, bring you to faith, and allow you, see, allow you to see the majesty of the King, the great lawgiver, in his law. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this testimony of the Apostle Paul showing us, Father, the usefulness of the law of God, how it is indeed necessary for how we live, for evangelism, restraining evil. We thank you, Father, that you have made known clearly what you desire, that you have made known what is good and right, and we thank you for that. Father, I pray for all of us here that 
our attention will be given over even more so to learn of your law and learn about the implications of it in our, in, in our time that we may carry it out and live to honor you. Do a work within our hearts. May the law of God be something we delight in. And it is something we can delight in. For Christ said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is not a burden, Father, to live in a way that honors you. If anyone here does not know you, Father, I pray that you would do a mighty work within their hearts, bringing them to faith, granting them, Father, faith in Christ, that they would be justified in your sight on account of him. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here. And may you be glorified in, in your people. We love you. We thank you for all things in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen.